I'm Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to this special edition of Cape Up. Two separate interviews with two elected officials in two different jurisdictions dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. We start with Governor Whitmer, who, after instituting one of the strictest stay-at-home orders in the nation, is getting set to review them. And I ask her why, after all the attacks from President Trump, she's polling better than him in a brand new Fox News poll. Governor Whitmer, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Glad to be with you. So you have one of the strictest stay-at-home orders, and now word comes that you're now reevaluating that stay-at-home order. What's changed to make that possible? So first, you know, I want to share kind of the rationale why we have one of the strictest stay-at-home orders. Michigan is um, the 10th most populous state in the nation, and yet we had the third highest death rate in the nation. And that's something that um, has just absolutely uh, devastated communities across my state. Uh, it's created an incredible amount of fear and concern. And we know that COVID-19 was spreading far and wide long before it was ever detected via test. And so I took actions to keep people safe and they're more restrictive than other states, but I thought that it was absolutely essential. After a few weeks of this stay-home posture, we have seen our trajectory really start to flatten. We've saved lives. And one of the things about um, public health is when you're successful, you're never able to really quantify precisely how many lives you save. But we know that this strategy is working here in Michigan. Every day, we're learning more about COVID-19. We are crunching the data. We are learning more through um, increased testing. We're not where we want to be or where we need to be as a nation. And certainly that's that's true in Michigan as well. But we are seeing um, this, you know, data that gives us um, optimism. And so as we evaluate uh, extending the stay home order, we're also in a op- moment where we can evaluate if there are some things that we might uh, lighten up on. Not dramatic changes, but changes that maybe bring us more in line with some of our our other states. And so this is a moment where uh, all of that evaluation is happening. I'm going to make a very um, thoughtful, data-driven determination that's centered around promoting public health, but also ensuring that uh, people are still uh, eager to abide by the stay home, stay safe order. And I think that's always the balance that that we have to do here to make sure that we keep compliance and and we keep giving people confidence that we've got a strategy to um, re-engage in a a very thoughtful, safe manner. So this is not a, just so that no one thinks that you're going to completely junk your stay-at-home order. This is is going to be something that is um, gradual. Sure. Yes, absolutely. This is, we've got to look at, I think the Trump administration says phases. Some people say we're going to open in stages. I like the visual of waves, you know, uh, we're surrounded by the Great Lakes. So I'm always (laughs) thinking in those terms, but um, I do think that we are going to have to be very thoughtful. We're going to have to measure every step of the way. Uh, There will be, you know, it'll be necessary that we're nimble 
if we see a spike start to happen, that we pull back when necessary, that if we are continuing to see success as we open things up where our numbers stay down and our ability to meet the needs in our hospitals and our PPE needs are met, then we can take the next step forward. But I think that the the leaders in epidemiology and and health sciences across our country are advocating that as the best practice to avoid a second wave. And I hope, even if you're a dissenter of the current stay-home order, we can all agree that avoiding a second wave is the most critical thing that um, we need to do. It'll save lives, but it would be absolutely devastating on our economy if we had a second wave, too. So you are a part of a, a compact of states, and correct me if I'm wrong, they're Great Lakes region uh, governors who have uh, joined together in sort of dealing with the with the pandemic. Can that compact that you're in hold if each of you opens up your respective eco- economies separately? Uh, or are you, given the, the evaluate, reevaluation that you're undertaking and the one that Governor DeWine in Ohio is undertaking, are those being coordinated so that way these, the, the waves of reevaluation, as you put it, are all being done in concert? Well, I'll say this, you know, one of the things that I have found incredibly helpful in these unprecedented times is that I've got a group of governors with whom I can share um, information and data and our thoughts and um, learn from. And I think it's made all of our determinations better, the fact that we've got an open dialogue. And it's open with Democrats and Republicans. I think that that's really important. When I pulled kids out of schools here in Michigan, I was one of the first states to do that. And um, immediately got a call from my friend J.B. Pritzker, governor of Illinois, saying, tell me your thought process. Why'd you do it? What are your experts telling you? Because they were contemplating it, but I had made the decision and they wanted to understand. You know, weeks later, maybe a week later, when he decided to close bars in Illinois and Mike DeWine closed bars in Ohio and they made their restaurants dine out only, I got on the phone with both of them and I said, tell me your thought process, tell me what you're seeing. So I I think that the sharing of information has been incredibly helpful. There aren't many people who can understand all the pressures that we are under, but we certainly can understand it from one another. And in a global pandemic, we're all in the in the same situation and we've got similar economies. And so I think that's important. And that's what really drove um, reaching out and trying to get everyone to join this kind of um, compact. Now, it doesn't mean that when I make a decision in Michigan, Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Illinois are going to make the same exact decision at the same cadence. But what it does mean is that we are having those robust conversations. I am organizing it. So we're getting on the phone regularly and our teams are as well so that uh, we're sharing it. We are learning from one another and it makes all of our decisions better informed and I think better decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, you created the Michigan Coronavirus Task Force on Racial Disparities, and it's dedicated to the memory of Skylar Herbert, who at five years old is the youngest person to die of the coronavirus in, in Michigan. It's the, the task force is headed up by your lieutenant governor. Um, why is this task force important? Sort of a leading question, but I'll have yeah. you hold forth. 
Well, you know, um, so, you know, my, my Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist is the chair of this task force. And one of the things that I'm really proud that we did in Michigan, we were one of the first states to do it. And frankly, not um, everyone has followed suit. And I'm hopeful that eventually we'll have every state following suit. But we've been releasing racial data on uh, our coronavirus cases. Now, even when it's not completely full, because we do have a lot of um, tests that were conducted and the race was not noted early on in the process, but gathering this data has really put a spotlight on the fact that we've got a disparate health outcomes. And anyone who's studied it, anyone who's been paying attention isn't surprised by that. But I think, I think the surprise is that it's so disparate that 14% of the Michigan population is African-American and yet... 40% of the deaths from COVID-19 are African-American. And I think that that's something that we absolutely have to, in this crisis, learn the lesson and make the societal changes um, to improve outcomes and to you know, have real equity. My state of the state I gave a few months ago, it feels like a lifetime ago now, but uh, you know, I highlighted, I spent a, a good part of my state of the state addressing the disparate outcomes for women of color and babies of color. It's three times more dangerous, uh, three more, times more deadly for a woman of color to have a baby in Michigan than it is for a white woman. And there's implicit bias. There, there are a lot of contributing factors. And I think it's incumbent on every leader, everyone who has a a position of authority to understand that that's an issue, that that's a problem, and we've got to fix it. And I think this has held a mirror up to our country, and really magnified um, the the historic uh, racial discrepancies that we have in our society, and fix them. Governor, what's been the hardest thing for you to deal with during all of this during the coronavirus pandemic? Well. You know, um, you mentioned Skylar Herbert, and she was a five-year-old uh, little girl in Detroit. And I talked to her parents yesterday. Her mom is a Detroit police officer. Her dad is a Detroit firefighter. These are the best of the best when it comes to public servants. And I mean, they were describing, you know, the morning yesterday where um, the the father had gone into the bathroom and saw Skylar's toothbrush and how he just was stopped in his tracks and and brought to tears. And you know, we were on the phone and and it was incredibly emotional and and it is right now the the thought that um, this virus uh, uh, you know um, took the life of this beautiful little girl who was everything to her parents and. Um, it, it showed up in Skylar in the form of meningitis and her parents were explaining that, you know, they had, they, they really complimented the care that they had for Skylar, the doctors and the hospital and the nurses that they were calling around the world to understand what to do about meningitis as a, you know, as a symptom of COVID-19 and they couldn't find anyone that had seen this before. And I think, it just really um, reinforces the the fact that this is a novel virus. There's no cure. There's no vaccine. It's incredibly contagious, and none of us knows how it is going to manifest in us. We could be carrying it and not even know it and infecting everyone we come into contact with. For what might be a, a fever and sore muscles for one person in your household could be fatal for another. And that, I think, was the hardest 
moment. It was also inspiring because these incredible people were like giving me a pep talk, you know, when I called to give them one. And it was just really, um, I think one of those poignant moments that you realize this is, these are thousands of Americans who have died, whose stories um, and families and loved ones are trying to grieve in a in an environment where you can't comfort one another in person. And, um, you know, when you, when you pause and reflect on that, I think it centers the fact that we, yes, we understand the economic pressures and, and it, this is a hard time for a lot of people, but we got to keep making decisions based on the science in order to save lives and ultimately um, get through this. You know, with his daily rallies from the White House press briefing room, the president has commanded American attention and he's gone out of his way to attack you, calling you, quote, the woman in Michigan in a tweet. He slammed you as, quote, Gretchen half Whitmer. And then in another tweet, he called on the people of your state to, quote, liberate Michigan, all caps, exclamation point, after you instituted your stay at home orders. And then thousands um, descended on the state capitol in Lansing to protest your actions. And yet, in a brand new poll from Fox News, it shows that your job approval rating is 16 percentage points higher than President Trump's. Um, the approval of your handling of the coronavirus situation is 19 percentage points higher than that of President Trump's. What do you make of that? I think, you know, the, the people of Michigan don't neatly fall into one political category or another. You know, we're hardworking people. They're honest. We love our families. So we expect our government to be as good and hardworking as as we the people are. And I think, um, you know, the the consistent, you know, messaging in terms of the seriousness of this moment is something that people appreciate. And and I think that's what we need. And I think that's been one of the the struggles um, between the states and the, and the federal government is, you know, I, I early on said I. I think we need a national strategy. And I was being very honest and, and blunt about that. And I know that it it rubbed some the wrong way, but the fact of the matter is more and more people are saying the exact same thing. <laughs> you know, more and more people are recognizing that a national strategy for the procurement of PPE and testing supplies alone would save lives. A national strategy about when it's safe to open and what the metrics are would would save lives. And I I really believe that, you know, from the from the start, that that is something that is complicating our ability to do our jobs. When people hear this might kill you and then they say, oh, you know, it might be gone, you know, in a few months to, oh, it doesn't impact um, children to, you know, we, we need to reopen tomorrow to, you know, Georgia shouldn't reopen tomorrow, you know. This, this inconsistent, inaccurate messaging, I think, is maybe one of the dangerous um, contributing factors to, to what we're seeing in, you know, in terms of outcomes. And, and so I, I, I've tried to stay consistent. I've tried to stay grounded in the facts and in the science and, and not to participate in the, the blatant political stuff because COVID-19 doesn't care what party you're in. <laughs> COVID-19 doesn't care what state you're in. It's a threat to every one of us, and we've all got to recognize that that's the enemy. It's not one another right now. Are you surprised by the, and my word, ineptitude 
of the federal response, of the response by the the Trump administration from the president on down? I think it's I think it's troubling. You know, I will say that I've had a good working relationship with, um, you know, people in the White House from from the vice president through FEMA to the Army Corps to uh, DHHS. I met with the secretary of the Army yesterday. I mean, I, I know that these are hardworking public servants who are who are um, working incredibly hard. But I will say this and and, and I'll also observe this is a global pandemic. This isn't like a hurricane hit one section of our country and we can all send in help to, to you know, as Americans pitch in. We're all fighting the same battle at the same exact time. And that's a, that's a tough situation. Early on, there was a conversation with the nation's governors and the president where the message was sent, we don't have what you need in the national stockpile. You got to go get it yourselves, essentially. And I think that was the kind of, eye-opening moment for me that I came out of that call and pulled my team together. And I think that was kind of the shocking moment that we really are on our own here and we got to start. We're not going to get counsel, direction, uh, consistent information or supplies from the federal government. We got to do this on our own. And I, that was a that was a shock. And that's when we put, built out our procurement arm of our state emergency operations center that's when we started trying to contract all across the, the world to get masks and gloves and gowns. And we found that we were competing with one another. We found that the federal government would um, supersede in contracts we expected to be coming in. They'd get canceled or delayed. And I think that's what really was the moment where I was um, pointing this out on, on some national interviews. And that's when when uh, I got the ire uh, of the feds, but you know, I was frustrated. I was I was very concerned about our ability to save lives. Our numbers were growing exponentially at that point. I'm competing with my fellow governors just to get masks for my nurses and doctors, and and I was very concerned. We had a day's worth of PPE at that point. We were literally living day to day, and as more and more people were getting sick. That uh, Fox News poll that I mentioned earlier also shows that a Biden-Whitmer ticket would beat a Trump-Pence ticket in Michigan by six percentage points. Has anyone from the Biden campaign reached out to you to talk to you about VP or ask you for any documents? No. And I'll say this, that that Fox News poll said that just a straight-up match between um Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump was going to end in Biden's favor. So I am pretty confident no matter who his running mate is, he's going to be a strong contender. That's a, that was a good, a good politic answer, Governor. Um, <laughs> I have two, two final questions for you. Um, one, what scares you about the moment that we're in? I think, you know, the, the fear of a second wave is the most concerning thing. Um, if we've gone through all of this heartbreak and pain and we, as a country, move forward too fast and we see a second wave, um, it'll be additional loss of life and it'll be absolutely devastating for our economy. And so uh, our ability to make educated decisions depends on supplies for testing, 
it depends on um, PPE for our front line and, and everyone who's, you know, interfacing with the public. And so these are the greatest needs right now. And the biggest concern is the prospect of a potential second wave. And even if we do everything right in one state, it doesn't mean we won't see that in another part of the country. And that still um, leaves, leaves everyone else vulnerable too. And what gives you hope? Well, the fact that the vast majority of people in my state, and I think in most states, are doing the right thing. You know, it's really phenomenal to um, see that the science um, informs the decisions, but it's the people that determine whether or not we execute on those decisions. And by and large, people are doing the right thing. They understand the seriousness. They've they've come to study it. And while there certainly are those who dissent and, and many who are unhappy, by and large, the most people are doing the right thing. And that's that's incredibly inspirational. And then to talk to the Herberts, Skylar's parents, and to, to hear um, kind of their attitude, I think was something that I, 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 didn't, I didn't know that I should expect this um, phenomenal world outlook. And uh, parents who are in grief are uh, you know, some of the strongest people that I've, I've met during my career in public service. And yet to talk to, to someone, um, in that moment and for them to give me a pep talk, I just absolutely astounded. Governor Gretchen Whitmer, 49th governor of the great state of Michigan. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Be well. And now, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Before the coronavirus hit, she made ending the racial health disparities in her city a priority. We start by talking about how the global pandemic and its disproportionate impact on African Americans in Chicago is making the case for her. Things have gotten slightly better on that front, but there are two troubling issues Mayor Lightfoot still has to confront. The myth within the black community that they can't get the coronavirus and why the pandemic is increasing gun violence in Chicago. Mayor Lightfoot, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. So almost exactly two months ago, you hosted a summit in Chicago. It was called the Solutions Toward Ending Poverty Summit with a goal of ending poverty in your city in a generation. And one part of your four-part plan is to end the racial health disparities in Chicago. And today, the coronavirus pandemic is making the case for you, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, look, the, we knew that there were significant disparities in the way that people access healthcare, also um, healthy uh, living, access to food, and all of that is around um, lack of investment and also poverty. And what this virus has shown us, both how um, it has really ravaged communities and how the, the vulnerabilities that were there are like flashing like a neon light, um, it tells us that we have to speed up exponentially our work in these areas. Uh, we don't have the, the, the luxury now of kind of pondering how we address these long-term systemic issues. Now, we're not going to turn all these issues around in a day around life expectancy and the kind of underlying medical conditions that plague way too many black and brown communities. But what we know is that we have to have a sense of urgency because they are making um, this virus, the virus is making these underlying conditions 
um, the, the even more um, extreme. We see that in uh, the adverse and disproportionate impact on the number of cases among black Chicagoans that have been diagnosed. Um, the, the still off the charts number of deaths. We know that this is a problem in the Latinx community and the Asian communities. So the things that we were, we were vulnerable, we're even more vulnerable right now. Um, can we talk more specifically about the statistics? Because I think it was when um, you and your administration put out its its numbers that the nation started talking about the fact that this was something that was uh, disproportionately impacting black and brown communities. And at the time, earlier this month, um, African-Americans in Chicago were 68% of the deaths, 52% of the confirmed cases, while only being 30% of the city's population. What are the statistics now? So um, we, the numbers are marginally better um, than they were um, then. Um, we are still, uh, African-Americans are right around 45% of the cases. And why that number, I think, has shifted down is because we're actually starting uh, to see more data in the Latinx community. And Latinx community is about 27% um, of the confirmed cases. Um, so what we're seeing is two things. We've mandated better capturing of demographic information. Because even at the time that we announced this now, almost three weeks ago, we knew in a quarter of the cases where we were seeing test results, we weren't getting the demographic information from providers. So we mandated that that demographic information, race, ethnicity, and other couldn't be skipped, that you had to report it. So the better reporting is kind of evening out a little bit of some of the numbers. But the, to be sure, um, African-Americans are still um, experiencing these disease in a disproportionate um, way. Um, the other things that we've done um, is made sure that we are really laser focused at a hyper-local level on a, educating people uh, and then have it creating a feedback loop from those communities to our larger citywide operations. Why that's important is let me give you a couple of examples. We knew that um, there were food insecurity issues really all over the city. Um, and we knew that in particular poor communities, this is really plaguing us. But as we started this kind of hyper-local focus, there's a, a majority African-American neighborhood called Auburn-Gresham on the south side. And as we started engaging with community leaders there, we realized that the number one call for service that not only that they were getting, but also our citywide numbers was around food. People mm. needed groceries. They needed access to healthy food choices. But by having that interconnection between the local in the citywide, we've now been able to engage and really bring more resources um, in those communities. And that's just one example of how we knew what we knew beforehand. We knew that we needed to solve these, these inequities, but this COVID response has really focused our attention to tailor our response even more. Another issue that's come into focus, you know, what we keep talking about all the time, social distancing really important. We see the data that shows that we're, for example, in the city of Chicago, we started out with about 59% of the time people were staying at home. Well, as we started to enforce some of these um, uh, 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 movement restrictions, that number has changed now to right about 80, and we're trying to get it up a little higher. But social distancing in Black communities in particular, very difficult.
Why? Number one, we live in smaller spaces and we may have intergenerational folks living in the same household. So the luxury of space that many of us have, a lot of folks in black and brown communities don't enjoy. The other thing that we learned, of course, is who are the people that have to go to work every day? The so-called essential workers. Many of those are people of color who can't afford not to go to work and don't have the kind of jobs where you can telecommute. So in thinking about how we tailor those social distancing messages, we have to tailor them to the reality of people's lived experience. And that's been very valuable for us in thinking about how we can better engage communities that are um, experiencing this virus in very different ways. Hey, can we talk about, are you also, in terms of the African-American community and the, and the challenges, are you having to deal with the conspiracy theory that um, has been talked about that, well, we're, black people are immune to coronavirus. Is that, is, is that a real thing that you're having to confront? No, 100%. It is absolutely a real thing. And really, when I talked about education, that's where we had to start. We had to start with myth busting, um, really saying, hey, folks, by the way, the first person in Chicago to die of coronavirus was a black woman. And people were like, what? And, and, and frankly, a lot of young folks were like, oh, that can't be true. Black folks can't get this. No, in fact, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it was a significant challenge. Do you know where this, this conspiracy theory came from? You know, I, I, I don't, but I, I can only believe that because this virus really started to rise to prominence in China and then spread to Europe, and it was and then only coming here in the later stages. Maybe that's where uh, it began. I don't know. But, you know, also embedded in that myth is the, I think, great concern going back to, you know, the um, experiments on black folks around, um, right. you know, uh, gonorrhea and other socially sexually transmitted diseases. There is a fear of the healthcare system. And that's another issue that we've had to really confront head on as we do this very targeted hyperlocal outreach. People are afraid of going to doctors. They don't have a longstanding relationship with preventative health care. They only go when it's really an emergency. And so figuring out how we really change the course of that reality and narrative within black communities is very much a part of this work. Um, how much pushback are you getting um, from the community when you tell when you try to as part of the education say uh, no indeed we are um, able to contract this virus? Well, the, the, I'll, I'll say where we really um, had to readjust our strategy and push hard. One is with the faith community. For too long, we still had um, black ministers convening church services. And it, the reality is that there was a, a death of a very well-known black bishop here in the city um, that really shook people to the core. Not only his death, but a significant portion of his congregation also contracted the virus because they continued to gather and literally congregate. So that, and that was several weeks into us saying no large um, gatherings, nothing. Initially it was under under 50, then under 25, then 10. 
We still had black churches that were gathering and ministers actively saying, hey, if you feel okay, come on down on Sunday. And, and obviously one of the concerns, and I get it, is if people don't show up, they don't give, they don't tithe. And so the financial impact on the churches is real. Um, the other area um, that we really saw it and continue to see it is among black youth. So 25 and, young, and younger really been hard for us to reach them. And we are, we are continuing to challenge ourselves to come up with creative ways with trusted surrogates, incredible people um, that young people listen to, to talk to them about the dangers of this virus. And the, the last area that I'll cite is, you know, look, the reality of many black and brown communities across Chicago is there aren't the kind of community anchors, the things that we take for granted, good grocery stores, places of entertainment. And even if they were, many of those, those things are shut down. And so as a consequence, the thing that's open a lot is um, liquor stores. Mm-hmm. And so we saw people congregating at liquor stores and liquor store owners were just not shutting that down. They weren't practicing social distancing. A lot of liquor stores are places where there are liquor sales, uh, are places where they'll sell a little bit of food, some groceries. And so they became these little community hubs in the face of everything else shutting down. And it was just a breeding ground for problems. And then the final thing is funerals. Um, Funeral directors and funerals have been a big focus of attention for us in the black community because, you know, we like to, we like to mourn our debt and rightfully so. But in a time of COVID having, you know, the normal sizes of hundred plus people going to funerals, that is just a recipe for disaster. And funeral home directors have really been under siege because grieving families, they want to be able to grieve their um, loved ones in the same way that they would have in any other time. And that is putting people at risk. We had a, a, a person who died here, a black woman again, who died after she went to a funeral and was next to somebody that had the virus. She brought it back home, got sick, had a lot of underlying medical conditions and passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, some big cities like New York City have been reporting that um, because of all this, crime rates are going down. Um, and I, I think I saw a story that in in Chicago, uh, gun violence, however, has not gone down. Is that it? Actually, gun violence has gone up. Yes, it's gone up, unfortunately. And here's here's what's happening. We were having a tough year. Um, before COVID, in early March, we had a downturn because people um, stayed inside. But as the weather started getting warmer, they're coming back out. And so the other dynamic that's going on here is um, really from a law enforcement, public safety perspective, the Chicago Police Department, oftentimes it feels like we're on our own. And here's what I mean by that. We got Cook County Jail, um, which is run by the county and the sheriff that has now become a COVID positive hotspot. So it's what the emphasis is, and I understand it is, we don't wanna take more people in. We wanna decompress. We wanna look for opportunities to let nonviolent offenders out of the jails. So that's one dynamic. The other dynamic is the Cook County State's Attorney doesn't wanna prosecute people. They don't wanna bringing, be bringing 
the hundreds of people that normally would circulate through the courts into the courthouse every day. And the judges don't want that. They want to be protected from the virus. So you've got the jails really sh slowing down or almost shutting down, the prosecutors wanting to shut down, and the courts shutting down. So, and then you've got a workforce in Chicago Police Department that themselves are worried about physical contact with people and getting getting sick and bringing that back, back home to their families. So it's in some ways the perfect storm. And the federal partners that we normally rely upon for being out and active and making cases and prosecution, they're all at home. So it's this it's this dynamic where unfortunately people who are shooters, they know absolutely what's up. I mean, they do. We hear that from our officers. They know that if they're caught, their likelihood of being prosecuted and or being out on bail right quickly because of the COVID conditions at the jail are extremely high. So the brazenness of some of the violence that we've seen is, is spectacular. But I'm, I'm happy to report we started with a new strategy literally just last night. Um, mm -hmm. I won't give away all the details, but for the first time in a really long time, we did not have a single homicide overnight in Chicago. Wow. And define a, a lot. Say that again. I only had two shootings. Two shootings, um, two shootings, but no fatalities. So two shootings and zero homicides. Now, I, you know, I'm going to curse myself, so I'm quick to knock on wood. But I'm hoping that what we've seen, and that's not a crime, that's not a trend, one 24-hour period, I'm, I, I have hesitate to add. But if this strategy works in this COVID environment, we could turn our, our numbers around pretty dramatically. We'll see. We'll uh, see. There's a lot of talk. Um, you're sort of lucky in that you're, you're in a state whose governor is a Democrat and is uh, abiding by CDC regulations and common sense. But does it make you nervous that there are governors of other states who are actively actively talking about reopening their states in the next few days? Well, it's worse than that. There are governors in states that have never taken the steps that I think are essential um, to make sure not only that their residents are safe, but those residents who then will travel to other states or other cities like Chicago. I think about the governor in um, Florida, the governor in Georgia, the governor of Iowa. I, I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very worried about them. And you're 100% right. I'm grateful um, that we have a leader like the governor that we have. But those governors in other states that are, oh, you know, we tried this for a couple of days. Now we're going to reopen. I mean, it's just, it's foolish and reckless. Um, in the little bit of time that we have left, l let me ask you a couple, two final questions. One and you've told, said a lot of things that is pretty scary that you're having to deal with. But what scares you about the moment that we're in? Well, I don't say scares me, but I think the thing that worries me a lot is um, how the people in the most vulnerable, on the, on the edge circumstances are going to fare through this. You know, look, the realities are, when you're in a vulnerable population, you're poor, you're sick, you have low life expectancy, you're homeless, 
your life is hard every single day, no matter what. But as I mentioned before, what COVID has taught us that those vulnerabilities that we have as a community are even more extreme. And so how do we fashion a recovery that reflects what those folks are experiencing every single day that has been laid bare and made even more difficult? How do we make sure that the recovery is responsive to them too? That is the thing I think a lot about every single day. And then what gives you hope? There's a lot of things that give me hope. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you one example. The other day I came home and got um, the mail and there was a letter from a young boy that lives a few blocks away. Um, but he mailed me a letter and it was, you know, in, in uh, marker and online sheets of paper and just thanking me. And the fact that he took the time to write me and sent me such an encouraging note, that just, that just makes my heart swell with pride. And it's humbling, um, but man, oh man, I, I, I'm gonna live on that for a long time. Mayor Lori Lightfoot, the 56th mayor of the great city of Chicago. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.